Spirit of the living God, we ask now that you will open our hearts and minds to and our ears that we might understand what you have given through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Apply it to our hearts as needed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated and open your Bibles with me to uh, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, our focus this morning will be from verses 10 through 17 of this passage. We've already read uh, together in our worship uh, John chapter 17, which records this prayer of the Lord Jesus before he was arrested and uh, taken to the cross where he prays that we will be one even as he and the Father are one, that the church of Jesus Christ will be brought to complete unity in him. That was Christ's concern for his church. And now in verses 10 through 17, I think the Apostle Paul has the prayer of the Lord Jesus in his mind when he writes these words here about unity and about division in the local church in Corinth. You and I live in a divided nation. Historically in Canada, we have referred to this as the two solitudes, that is the division between French Canada and English Canada, the lack of communication historically in our nation between Francophone and Anglophone. But in this historic notion of two founding peoples, um, we have forgotten that there is a third solitude in Canada. And that has led to even greater division, and that solitude, of course, is the indigenous people of our land. So this very historic divide has widened over the years, widened now in that regions are separated from each other, particularly in the West and how they feel about their place within our confederation. Our government, I think, excels at times in driving wedges between people in our land. And our Prime Minister would not be the first to, to, do, to do so, neither will he be the last. For there is some, something about maintaining a political, a political party's status that drives our whole political process. In other words, division is systemic to our political process. COVID divided us in many ways. It divided families and communities and churches. The media no longer simply reports the news. They want to give us their particular slant on the news. And social media, of course, fuels division even more. It is almost like a petri dish in which factions and divisions are bred. LGBTQ activism and the woke agenda in our nation is tearing at the very fabric of Canadian life. And division always means conflict. At the best, it brings sadness. At the worst, it creates suffering. Sometimes division is all about the positions that people take on various matters. Other times, it's about the personalities that are associated with a particular position. And unfortunately, here in the church at Corinth, 
this problem in the world was mirrored in the church. And this is the first problem that the Apostle Paul addresses, addresses in this letter, the first of a long list of other things that he identifies that were wrong in the Corinthian church. So I want us to look now this morning at the Corinthians division prob, 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 problem, and I want you to see verses 10 through 12. Follow me as I read. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Christ or Cephas, which means Peter. And still another, I follow Christ. Last Sunday morning in the, in the opening verses of this letter, we saw the, the, the pastor's heart of the Apostle Paul as he encouraged the believers in Corinth and reminded them that, that, that the church is comprised of all those who've been called by God's grace, that the church has been equipped with every gift of God's grace, and that the church will be sustained right to the end by a faithful God who keeps us strong to the end. Now Paul reveals his, his pastor's heart again by addressing this issue of division in the Corinthian church. So let's look at this division and consider the influence of the culture in Corinth that was behind this division. Now it's very, very clear in these verses that the, the division in the Corinthian church was centered around groups of people in the church following certain leaders who historically had had great influence in that church. Verse 12 makes that clear. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. I follow Christ. This, this personality-centered, partisan divide was rooted in the pervasive cultural winds that blew through Corinth. It's understandable, really, how influence, influence these believers were by the culture in which they lived. Now, keep this in mind that in the, in the ancient world, 2,000 years back, in a, in a city like Corinth, there were, there were no things like movie theaters or video games that people could use to entertain themselves. In the Greek and Roman world, there were theaters in which theatrical plays would happen, there were parks, there were all kinds of venues that the Greeks and the Romans had in order for individuals of great speaking ability to stand up to massive crowds and to wow, their, wow the crowds with their eloquent speech. And this is what happened in Corinth. There were speakers, there were orators, there were philosophers who the people loved to hear and that's how they entertained themselves. And they would all gather around their favorite philosopher or speaker. Now, the Greeks were very, very passionate about what they called the pursuit of wisdom. They were enamored with all kinds of differing philosophies that would compete with each other. 
And they were enamored with men who, who utilized their, their clever oratorical skills, what the Greeks called the wisdom of words, the wisdom of words in debates and in speeches. So the people were absolutely wowed by the skills of these men. Today, if uh, people follow a comedian like Ron James, uh, they, might be, um, they might be very, very impressed and entertained by him. If you've ever heard him speak, he has this spellbinding, emotion-stirring, clever-weaving, rhetorical wit and one-liners that will send you laughing forever. This is what the Corinthians were all about. They had these favorite speakers, these men who had a way with words who would entertain them. And so their identities as individuals, as people, got all wrapped up in the philosopher that they followed. In other words, in Corinth, this partisan spirit was everywhere. Now, there were also groups of people who were devoted to the various Greek gods. I mentioned these last week, Aphrodite and Astarte, the, god, the goddesses of, of love and fertility and war. Then there was Osiris and, and, and Isis, uh, who were the gods of healing and magic, the gods of death and the afterlife. Archaeologists have uncovered objects out of the ground with inscriptions on them in Corinth and in Athens and other places in Greece. And the inscriptions say, I belong to Aphrodite, or I belong to Osiris. This, this spirit of partisan culture now, which was so prevalent in the cities, had now crept into the church, and it engulfed the church. Of course, it was, it was Christian in nature. It wasn't the pagan gods, but it was the Christian leaders that now had the devotion of disciples. And so what was outside the church had crept into the church and was influencing disciples of Jesus along a path that Jesus never intend, intended, leading personalities in the church. Now, there was a deep concern concerning about this, not just on the part of the Apostle Paul, but there was a member of that church who was deeply concerned by what she saw. And she is mentioned in verse 11, my brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Now, we don't know who this Christian woman was, but it is believed that she became a disciple of Jesus through the preaching of Paul. She was probably a prominent widow because usually in the ancient world, a household's name would be the name of the, fa the father, but here it's her name that is here. Remember that Paul was 500 kilometers away across the Aegean Sea at Ephesus when he was informed. So assuming that she sent some individuals to Paul to inform him of what was, go was going on, it shows how deep her concern was, where her heart really lied. She was concerned for this church and she may have been equally respected by all of the various factions in the Corinthian church. Now, verse 12 tells us what the four factions are. The first group was the I follow Paul group. Now, there would have been many in that group, I assume. And I say that because in chapter 4, verse 15, the apostle Paul says, 
I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, Paul was their spiritual father. He had shared Christ with them, and so he had a a great impact on so many of them, and they would have felt incredibly attached to him. In this group's mind, there is no one like Paul. No one could ever match him. All of the other leaders of the church are just simply second rate. Second group, I follow Apollos. And we know from Acts chapter 18 that Apollos had come from the city of Alexandria on the northern coast of, of Egypt. And we know that Alexandria in those days was a, was a city of, of education. It was a city of learning. There were many intellectual elites that were involved in the university life of that city. And it would appear that Apollos had been trained in rhetoric and intellect while he was there. Because in Acts 18, Luke tells us that he was a learned man. And he had a thorough knowledge of what the, script, the scriptures taught. Luke goes on to say that he spoke, spoke with great fervor and that he, he went into the synagogue in Corinth and he vigorously refuted the Jews who were denying the Messiahship of Jesus and he proved from God's word that Jesus is the Messiah. And this is a man who was an incredible speak, speaker. And Luke also tells us that he was a great help to those who through grace had believed in the Lord Jesus. Assuming then that there were intellectuals in the church or people who had come from Alexandria to Corinth, he would have been their hometown guy. The next group was those who followed Peter. It is believed that Peter had made a visit to the Corinthian church at one point in time. We don't know that for sure, but they certainly would have known about Peter because he was one of the original twelve. And much of what we have in the Gospels is focused on Jesus' relationship with the Apostle Peter. How many conversations between Peter and Jesus do we have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? We have many. So as the Apostle Paul would have taught them about Jesus, Peter would have been a part of his teaching. And they would have known that Jesus, or Jesus called Peter the rock, and so many of them would have said, you know, he's the rock, the church is sort of founded on Peter, he's the great apostle to the Jews, so probably the Jewish section of the church was all about Peter. And then there's this, this, this last group, and, and uh, these are the ones who say, I follow Christ. Now, on the surface of things, as you, as you read that, I follow Christ, you're, you're thinking, that's good, at least there was one group in the church that got it right. That's actually not what Paul is saying. He's saying there was actually a group in the church who claimed they had a special claim on Christ. In other words, this is the super spiritual group. Oh, we don't follow any human teachers. We just follow Jesus. Sort of like groups today that say, oh, no, we don't have a pastor. We don't have a leader. We don't have a teacher because we just rely on the Holy Spirit as though they have an in on the Holy Spirit that nobody else does. And so here were the four factions. Now, it might be hard for us to really imagine what this was like 2,000 years back. But if we could bring this into our contemporary setting, perhaps we could say that there would be at West Highland a group of people who would say, I follow Lee Brubaker. He has the best voice of all. I'm moving to Barry. <laughs> or others who would say, 
Oh, I follow Ken Ingram. He is the best visitor among all the pastors in the church, and he has a real cute mustache. <laughs> or others who would say, well, I follow John Mahaffey because clearly he's the best looking of all the pastors <laughs> of West Highland. Well, what's clear is that their allegiance was to these leaders. And in this sense, what they were doing was just mirroring the divisive culture outside of the church. And so to talk about the serious nature of division, it becomes very, very clear in verse 10 where Paul appeals to them. I want to focus now on unity and the appeal of the Apostle Paul. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. The word appeal here is the word exhort. It's not, it's not the same as someone giving a military command that is to be obeyed without any thought or reasoning at all. The idea here is, is more along the line of coming alongside someone to reason with them, to help them, to gently correct them. I appeal to you. I exhort you. I'm coming alongside you and trying to reason with you gently like a father would reason with a son to correct you. It has the idea of a warm encouragement that is being given. Now this appeal for unity actually starts here in verse 10. But friends, you can read all of verse chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and all of chapter 3, and you will see that it is the dominant thought in Paul's writing. In other words, from chapter 1 to chapter 3, one-fifth of the whole letter is all about Paul appealing for unity in the church. Now I want you to notice this line. I appeal to you, brothers... Notice what Paul then says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two important things here. By using the phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul is emphasizing the importance of this issue. In other words, it's not just Paul making the appeal. It is Jesus himself, through the apostle, who's making this appeal. Secondly, by saying, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul is stressing a very important principle of the Christian life and the way we be behave as believers in Jesus. And that is that the totality of our lives need to be focused on the person of Jesus Christ and not on others. The problem here was that they were focused on others and not on Christ. Go back to verse 9. The God who called you, who is faith, faith, faithful, he has called you into the fellowship of his son. Of his son. Not the fellowship of Paul, not the fellowship of Apollos, but the fellowship of his son. And we are in the fellowship of his son together. 
So when Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is actually appealing to their core beliefs. He's appealing to to the, the fundamental things that they believe in about Jesus rather than their being enamored with certain Christian leaders. And in verse 10, he says that there may be no divisions. Now, the word he uses here for divisions is a word that is used in a sense as a a metaphor concerning clothing. The actual word is schism, schism. And it means to rip apart. It means to tear apart. It's the the ripping of, of cloth, the ripping of fabric. Now, we get a good insight now into what disunity really is in a local church. You know, you know what it really is? It's the ripping apart of brother from brother, sister from sister. It's the ripping, ripping apart of a favorite dress or a suit or a favorite, favorite piece of clothing. And Paul is saying by their, by their partisan attitude and action, He is saying their actions and their factions are ripping apart a beautiful and treasured fabric within the Christian community, and that fabric is Christ himself. They're ripping apart Christ. Verse 10, he talks here about being perfectly united with one another, and the word he uses there. Is, a, is another word related to clothing, but it's the word to knit, to knit clothing. You're knit together in mind and thought. So this being knit together is tied into this, the phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It refers to one thing, the most important thing that all Christians have in common. And what you and I have in common is our commonly held commitment and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our identity is not to be wrapped up in others or in other leaders or in factions within a church. Our identity is to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verse, beginning of verse 13, the Apostle Paul shifts his appeal to um, what I would call gospel-centered counsel. And he asks three rhetorical questions, beginning in verse 13. So we're going to look now at the apostles' gospel-centered counsel, and notice what he asks. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I'm thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? You see, these three questions expose what the root of the problem really is. The root of the problem of division goes all the way down to the very core of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. 
These three questions that he asks are based on what is, what is the, the foundation of the Christian church. Is Christ divided? Literally, it means, is Christ divided up? Has Christ been parceled out? Have we taken a little bit of Jesus here and given it to this group, and a little bit of Jesus here and given it to that group? Is Christ divided? Now, the Apostle Paul uses the metaphor of the body to speak of the body of Christ, the church. In chapter 12, he says, the body is a unit. The body's made up of many parts. And though all of its parts are many, they form one body. And then he says, so it is with Christ. There is one body of Christ. There are not two bodies or three bodies. There is one body of Christ. In other words, Christ is multi-membered, but he is one. He is one. Paul says in Ephesians 4, there is one body, one spirit, just as you and I were called with one hope. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. Do you realize what Paul is saying when he says, is Christ divided? He's saying, do you suppose that the, the fragments, that there are fragments of Christ that can be given to different groups in the church? In essence, what he's saying is, if you have Jesus, you have all of Jesus. You don't just get a part of him. You can't have half a person. You can't invite Jesus into your life and say, Jesus, I only want a part of you. All of Jesus belongs to all who belong to him. Jesus can't be parceled out. Question two, was Paul crucified for you? Now, now isn't that a foolish question in one sense? Paul crucified for them? Only Christ was or could be crucified for his people and in place of his people. See, this is just another way in which Paul is challenging us to fix our eyes on Christ. Paul wants our attention to go to the Christ who was crucified for us. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 2. Just jump over there. Chapter 2, verse 2. I should start at verse 1. When I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. Verse 2, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you. Except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, that's the message that attracted us, wasn't it? That Christ was crucified for us. This is the message that God used to call us into fellowship with his son. Christ crucified is the message that has changed us. This is the message that gripped our hearts. This is the message that caused you and I to repent and to embrace Jesus and to give our full allegiance to him. Jesus is the only one who can unite his people. And how does he do it? He does it through his cross. And all of us have come to God through the cross of Christ. And at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. All of us are equal at the cross. 
And this is the reason why the Lord's Supper is so important to us, because we, we come to the table of Christ as sinners who've been redeemed by the Lord Jesus, and it is at the table that we confess all of those things which we have done that cause division between us and between us and God. And then we gratefully and joyfully celebrate our unity in forgiveness and cleansing. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ produces unity among God's people. Question three, were you baptized into the name of Paul? Well, no, of course not. We were baptized only in the name of the Lord Jesus. Because Christ was crucified for us, only in the name of Christ could a believer be baptized. Now, this is an important question. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? It's important because it gets right to the root of what baptism actually means. Were you baptized into the name of Paul? No. You were baptized into the name of Christ. You were baptized in the name of the triune God. Keep this in mind. To be baptized into the name of someone is to sign your life over to that person. Now, that's the significance of what baptism is. It is the signing of your life over to Jesus Christ. When you are baptized in the name of the triune God, you are coming under the authority of God himself. When you are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, you become the possession of Jesus. Not the person who baptizes you, but into whom you are baptized. Now, this is the reason why in verse 14, Paul says, I'm thankful I did not baptize any of you except Christmas and Gaius so that no one can say you were baptized into my name. What's he saying? He's saying, I am so glad I only baptized a few of you in the Corinthian church because I don't want you to think that you belong to me. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see what he's doing? He's bringing us back to in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's pointing a divided church back to Jesus Christ. He's pointing a divided church back to the gospel, back to the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. And he underscores it again in verse 17 when he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, to preach the cross of Christ. He's talking here about the priority of what we believe in, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 17, Paul is not diminishing the importance of baptism in any way whatsoever. Rather, he is, he is magnifying the supreme importance of the gospel of Jesus. The message that through the cross, we are reconciled to God. This is the priority. Jesus, his death on the cross... The gospel, the message about the cross, it is only in Christ and the gospel that the church finds true unity. I'm going to say that again because I'm going to come back to that a little bit later. It is only in the gospel of Christ that the church finds true unity.
Now, with this, with this teaching in mind, and I trust in our hearts, what I want to do now is I want to share three takeaways with you, and I want you to consider these three. I want you to think about them today. Those of you who are in, in, in our community groups, I want you to think very, very much as you get into your community groups and discuss these three important points. Each one of these things has a connection between our Savior Jesus and the unity of the church. I want to talk first of all about Christian baptism, secondly about church leadership, thirdly I want to come back to Christ and the gospel message. Again, each one of these is connected to Christ and unity. We're going to go with Christian baptism first. We're going to begin here because we, that's how the passage ends. It ends with so many references to, to, bap, to baptism. And I want to begin, begin here. Beginning here because baptism is at the heart of Christian life and Christian allegiance. And you might say, well, John, it's just something that happens once. And in your case, it might have happened many, many years back. But friends, it is at the heart of Christian life and allegiance. It's at the heart of what it means to be a disciple in the fellowship of his church. About uh, 22, 23 years ago in my former church, an elderly couple came to me, and uh, they had been baptized by Charles... Tem Templeton. If you're younger, you don't remember who he was, but if you're older, you would remember that he was the great Canadian evan evangelist who was a contemporary and a very good friend of Dr. Billy Graham. Charles Templeton had pastored the Avenue Road Church of the Nazarene in Toronto during the 1940s and the early part of the 50s. And under his ministry, thousands, thousands of people came to faith in Christ across Canada and across the United States. As a matter of fact, in many ways, he eclipsed Billy Graham as the outstanding evangelist in that period of time. They had been baptized by him, and you remember in June of 2001, Charles Templeton died in Toronto. They came to me distressed, because for a number of years, because Templeton had abandoned the faith and walked away from Christ, because that had happened, they wondered for many years about the legitimacy of their baptism. And so as I conversed with them, I asked them this. When Charles Templeton baptized you, were you swearing allegiance to him or to Christ? When you were being baptized by him, were you, you coming into union with him or with Christ? And the answer was clear. It was Christ. Let me say this and hear me. It doesn't matter a hill of beans who baptized you. What matters is into whom you were baptized. That's what matters. Because when you are baptized into Jesus, you sign your life over to him. Baptism signifies your union with Jesus Christ, not a union with the pastor who baptizes you. 
Now, I think you know, if you've been here for a period of time, you know that when we do have a baptism here and the tank is up here and we have a number of pastors who take part. And the reason for that is there are individuals in the church who are being baptized and they, they ask, is, would it be all right if, you know, if Pastor John or Pastor Chris or, 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 uh, or Pastor Jamie were to baptize me? And, and we always try to accommodate that because we know that when that request comes, there's, they have a special place in their heart for that pastor, that leader within the church. There is nothing wrong with that. It is perfectly natural to have a special affection for the pastor who has influenced you, led you to Christ, taught you, counseled you, was there for you when you were in a crisis, and he prayed with you. Perfectly natural for that to happen. But hear me. If you are more committed, if you are more enamored with the person who baptized you rather than the one into whom you were baptized, then that is very, at the least, spiritually unhealthy. It can become toxic. In, the, in, the, in, in, in Corinth, it led to disunity and division in the church. It is a spiritually toxic issue. The pastor who baptized you, or if you've not been baptized yet, will baptize you in the future, has only one thing in mind, and that is a desire that burns in his heart that you will want to follow Jesus Christ with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And so we may have affections and appreciation and respect for people who have influenced us in the Lord, but our loyalty must be only to Jesus Christ. To be baptized into the name of someone is a sign that you have handed your life over to that person. That's the significance of what baptism is, a signing over of your life, a coming under the authority of Christ, and of becoming the possession of Jesus. Number two, let's talk for a moment about church leadership. This passage is about baptism. The passage is about leadership. But it all ties in with Christ and unity in the church. Now, as we've already seen, the division that was in Corinth had a link to the different leaders who had served this church at different times. It's, I think it's safe to say from this passage that it wasn't the leaders who were guilty of fostering this partisan spirit. It's very clear in the passage that it was the members of that church. There was no disagreement between Paul, Apollos, Cephas. No disagreement whatsoever. There was no doctrinal disagreement between these three. They all believed the same things. It was the members themselves who were guilty of clustering around these different leaders. But sometimes in the history of the church, leaders can be guilty of cultivating factions. Listen. The fruit of divided leadership in the church, whether that is, it is intended or not, is always a divided membership. Let me say this in a different way. God's blessing to a church is always connected in some way to a united leadership within the church. Let me say it one more time in a different way. 
whenever we see a church that is enjoying great blessing, it is always, it always is because there is some kind of good leadership component in that church. Now in chapters three and four, the Apostle Paul actually says so much more about leadership in the local church. Leader, things that we need to, un, to understand. And we're going to get there in a couple of weeks' time. But I want you to just turn over to chapter 3, verse 5, for just a moment. Let's just focus on one truth. Chapter 3, verse 5. Paul comes back to this issue of Apollos and, and Paul and Cephas. And he asks a question. Let's go back to verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What's he saying here? You're acting like men who are outside of Christ. You're just mere men. There's no true spirituality here. There's no, there's no depth to your faith. You're just, you're just acting like pagans, like men. Verse 5. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? What's he say? Only what? Say it. Servants. Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. And then he goes on and he talks about the various tasks and how these leaders were all working in cooperation with each other. I planted the seed. That's when Paul went to Corinth and started the church. Next guy who came along was who? Apollos. What did he do? He watered it. He watered the seed. It's the same seed. It's the gospel. He watered it. Now, did Paul make it grow? Did, did Apollos make it grow? What's the verse say? God made it grow. God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is, is anything. But only God who makes things grow. Who are the leaders of the church? Just servants, that's all. The Corinthians had this inflated view of certain people, certain leaders, and it needed to be corrected in order to foster unity. Now this understanding of what true Christian leadership is all about contributes to unity. It builds unity in the church because it always keeps the focus on Jesus Christ. It magnifies Jesus because he is the one who gives leaders and servants to the church. It is Christ who gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the building up of the church. It's all about Christ. And so we are only servants through whom you came to believe or through whom you grew in your, in your faith. So I encourage you to do what Scripture encourages you to do. Support the leadership of the church. Encourage us. Pray for us. Hold us, I trust, in high esteem. Submit, submit to the authority that Christ has entrusted to us, but always remember we're just simply servants of Christ and the church. Amen? Number three, let's talk about Christ and the gospel again. Now, the passage is very clear. 
This division occurred because the focus was on men and not on Jesus. It is clear that the way to keep the unity of the Spirit is to focus on Jesus, to make sure that our allegiance is to Him, that our allegiance to Him should take precedence over all other affections and appreciations for we have, that we have for pastors and leaders. So I want to underscore that again, the importance of being focused as a church on no one else but Jesus. Now let me say a little bit more. Right now, Right now, in the broader Christian community, in Hamilton, in Ontario, and across Canada, churches and denominations and bodies of believers are becoming, they're becoming fixated on unity. This fixation on unity is causing church leaders to compromise their beliefs in order to maintain unity in churches. Now, such a concern for unity has become more important than loyalty to Jesus Christ. Or to put it in another way, people are wanting to keep unity because they think it is equal in importance to Christ himself. Now hear me. When the truth about Jesus Christ and the gospel is abandoned. In order to keep the church united, just for unity's sake, then the importance of unity has become the idolatry of unity. We live in an age of compromise and confusion. Churches are compromising with false teaching allowing it to come into the church because they have some notion, some unsound idea of what unity really is. We just all need to see with each other and get along with each other and, and just kind of feel good with each other. That's not what unity is. The all you need is love kind of unity is not the unity that the Bible speaks about or this passage makes clear. It's not that at all. When unity is achieved by the abandoning of sacred doctrines about Christ, or the moral imperatives of the apostles, or the fundamental truths of the gospel of Christ, then that church, that denomination, has changed the importance of unity into the idolatry of, un of unity. The church's unity is based upon what we believe about Jesus, about the truth of the gospel of Christ. And any kind of unity that disregards that truth or compromises that truth or allows other confusing doctrines to influence the people in order to please the people, to make everyone feel that they are part of a happy Christian fellowship is nothing more than an illusion. Godly unity, unity rooted in what the scriptures teach, always displays Christ. Not a Christ of people's imagination, not a Christ that people think up, 
who they want Christ to be a certain way for them. No, but the Christ who is revealed in Holy Scripture. Division always creates a lie about Jesus, about what Jesus is like. Hence the question, is Christ divided? Why did he ask that? Because that's the lie the Corinthians were displaying to their city. And the city was thinking, you're just as divided as we are. That's all Jesus is. It created a lie about Christ. And every time unity is created, and it abandons truth about Jesus at the same time, it sends out a lie of display to the city, to the people who surround us. Any kind of unity that puts aside Christ and what the scriptures say, any kind of unity around a particular person or a particular theology that pays no attention to the clear teaching of the Bible does nothing more than create a lie about Jesus Christ. And that lie gets displayed to the whole world. But godly unity, grounded in scripture and based upon the gospel, displays Christ. It magnifies Christ to the world. And this is the kind of unity that needs to be seen in our world today because this is the unity that is really needed. And Bible-believing churches need to exemplify that kind of unity to a country that is torn apart, to a city that struggles with, with polarized communities, and to churches confused and compromising as they give themselves over to the doctrines of demons. This kind of unity displays Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. Amen. Would you stand, please? Our God and Father, we... We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ today. We thank you for baptism and all that it signifies. We thank you for leadership in our church that is united in the gospel. We thank you for Paul's exhortation to us in this letter, this appeal that he makes. And today we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you will help us to remain faithful to you and to your cause, to the scriptures that you have given to us, and that you, by the Holy Spirit, will foster in us an abiding, enduring, and blessed unity in the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.